if you saw my LinkedIn post this week, I think it was I think it was May twenty third. This is twenty twenty three for those who are listening to this later. Um, you know that we're giving away four complimentary seats for the Master of Advertising Effectiveness program known as MAE, Master of Advertising Effectiveness. It's a six-week part-time online program that gives you a clear understanding of the proven evidence-based principles that consistently deliver better campaign results. It's taught by strategist and author James Herman, uh, he's written two great books. He's been on the show a number of times. Uh, he's written The Case for Creativity and also another book called Future Demand, which just came out in 2023. Uh, it's also in partnership with Wark. And it's, an, I think, a great opportunity to learn from one of the best effectiveness voices in the industry. And as I said, a frequent guest on the show. The course starts uh, June 5th and will give you all you need to support and drive effectiveness principles throughout your organization or throughout your agency. If you're interested in one of the four seats, just email me at hello at onstrategyshowcase.com. That's hello at onstrategyshowcase.com. And just put M-A-E in the description line. And we're going to select four random people this Thursday, June 1, 2023. So if you're listening to this episode after June 1, 2023, I'm sorry, but you're late uh, for this particular opportunity. Hopefully we'll do another one uh, in the future. As you know, Master of Advertising Effectiveness is a sponsor of our show, and we're thrilled to have them. And uh, if you uh, are interested in being a, a sponsor and supporter of our show, uh, or if you're a media planner whose client's offering would make our listeners' lives just that little bit better, you can download our 2023 sponsor kit on our homepage at onstrategyshowcase.com. Anyway, let's talk about uh, this week's episode. Uh, here's a clip. I think something that they were aware of is that since the 2010s, that idea of being counterculture and anti-establishment might have swung the pendulum a little too far into being overly exclusive, where, you know, at, at one point we were trying to go against the the norm uh, to differentiate, but then it started to feel like this exclusive, you can't sit with us kind of attitude um, and being overly exclusionary. That's Lauren Sudi. She's Director of Brand Strategy at DNA in Seattle. And I was really excited to have Paps, which is a beer here in the U.S., Paps Blue Ribbon, on the show, because I'm always excited and, and uh, I'm always excited to sort of hear about brands that have the ability to live in what sort of appear to be opposing cultures at the same time. So for an example of that might be Carhartt. I've always wanted to get Carhartt on the show. If anybody has an in do let me know, seriously. Uh, my, my attempts have failed. I love Carhartt because it seems to live in two opposing cultures. It lives as an iconic sort of feature or, or brand in street culture and in rap music, while also being an icon of blue-collar working men and women. Uh, it, you know, Timberland is a similar sort of, um, somewhat similar example of that. And I think Pabst uh, Blue Ribbon sort of is the same thing. It's sort of a working man's beer while also being a college kid staple uh, with almost cult-like status. Uh, and it's had sort of cult-like status at various stages over the decades that it's been around. You know, it featured back in the 1970s in the movie Easy Rider. It also appeared in Blue Velvet. It's been in a ton of TV shows and movies. 
And, and it's always been sort of an affordable college bar beer. Uh, it's never gotten a massive share of market. I think it's roughly around, you know, a little bit under 5% or less. Um, but it is a brand that's really interesting in the way that it has sort of intentionally managed its sort of cult-like status over the decades. So I was excited uh, to be able to talk with uh, with Lauren and Rob about the new campaign that they've launched this year. And uh, and I think you'll find it exciting. Be sure to look at the work, too, on our website uh, under the episode page for this particular one. So here is uh, Lauren Sudi. Uh, she is uh, Director of Brand Strategy and Rob Scherzer, Director of Innovation and Digital Experience at the agency DNA in Seattle. We'll be right back. Hello and welcome to the most effective advertising campaign in the world. Which is this campaign for the Master of Advertising Effectiveness, a six-week online program in partnership with Walk that'll give you a next-level understanding of the evidence-based principles of advertising effectiveness. The very same principles we've used to create this. The most effective advertising campaign in the world. Over the coming years, you'll experience a campaign that's perfectly budgeted and targeted over both the short and long terms and replete with emotion, distinctive assets, and most importantly, creativity. It will at some point result in you visiting our website, mae.academy, signing up, becoming a master of advertising effectiveness, and also becoming a piece of hard evidence that this is in fact the most effective advertising campaign in the world. I'm super intrigued by the intentionality of where this brand is and how it frames its own narrative. So I'm, I'm, that's, that is one of the major reasons why I wanted to do this is to have you guys on. But before we get into that, let's just start off, Lauren, and, and talk a little bit about how you might describe the, uh, the Paps Blue Ribbon brand. N- not everybody's going to be familiar with it. I got to assume most people who are overseas listeners will not have heard of it at all. But maybe they'll be able to relate to brands from their own worlds uh, when we draw parallels between these brands' personalities. So tell us a little bit about uh, about the brand and uh, you know and whom does it uh, compete against? Sure. So I, I think in the U.S. markets, everybody might have had at least one experience with PBR. But for for folks overseas, PBR is sort of that classic. Uh, always on tap beer at every dive bar you've ever been to. They have this unpretentious attitude. It's more of a value-driven price point, and it's really drinkable. Uh, They talk about it being kind of a sessionable beer where it goes down easy, and it's really popular in the bar scene and backyard gatherings. I think from a brand personality perspective, they've had at least for the past few decades, kind of this character about them of being more rebellious, a little bit of an underdog within a mix of the Budweiser's and and the Miller High Lifes of the world. Um, they're they're on this evolution from somewhat of a of a jester sort of everyman character um, to a, a brand that's more about instigating fun moments with your friends and celebrating this come as you are attitude. Uh, so in terms of competition. Right now, they have about 5% of their total market share, and they're trying to go up against these heavy hitters like Bud Light or Bush Light or Miller High Life. And ultimately, they've struggled to break out of what they would consider their diehard core fan base. They have these mega fans that have sort of carried the torch for them. But as we can kind of talk about, those folks are starting to become fewer and far between as popular culture is being handed down to sort of the next generation um, of, of people who are going to be the the drinkers that carry what's popular and what you want to have in hand. So it's, uh, Rob, is there anything you'd add to that? I think the 
the interesting thing about uh, PBR and how it competes in the landscape is that it's not just against kind of uh, the other sub-premium beers in the category, but it's also they're competing for share of self-expression and share of culture. And I think that's when you discuss the intentionality of how the brand positions itself, um, you know, PBR is a, is a beverage. It's a product that punches above its own weight. And it has this kind of badge of, uh, like a quality drink that's unpretentious and authentic. Um, and so it's, it's kind of like a, a, a representation of oneself just as much as it is a product. So it's, it's, it's interesting how that kind of has evolved over the last 150 years. So did it, Lauren, did it start off as being sort of a brand for the working class or the everyday person, or did it intentionally sort of insert itself into, into uh, originally I'm talking, I'm thinking about into that space because it's, as you say, I love the word sub premium, uh, uh, brand. I think the working class connotation comes from price point and availability of the product. So you can you can find it most places. But I think what PR did over the past 25 years is maybe really start to pay attention of how consumers were using their beverage um, and start to feed back into the experiences that they were having that surrounded um, their nights out. So What's interesting is when you look at sort of the journey that PBR had been on, it's been around for 150 years and it's had a couple different resurgences over that time. It was really big in the 70s. Um, there was some fun kind of kitschy jingles that went along with it and people sort of embraced it. Then it started to kind of fall out of popularity again. And what really helped it kind of take off is sort of this hipster subculture movement in the in the 2010s. And that's very much something that happened to them, but that they then took and, and really ran with. So in the 2010s, you're kind of remembering a time where this is sort of before brands, especially big brands, really understood how to participate in the culture of their audiences what grassroots marketing could look like in a non-traditional perspective. And so PBR noticed that they have these 20-somethings who are really counterculture, anti-establishment sort of attitude, and they were picking up the product and they were badging themselves with it. They were using PBR as sort of this flag of, you know, I go against the grain kind of attitude. I surround myself with products that aren't trying to sell me some sort of image and tell me what I should be drinking. And they paid attention to that. And I think we're one of the first brands back then to really start to then feed back into the culture of that audience and find opportunities to pass them the torch, so to speak. So, so did you, do you think that that happened organically or that, um, that the brand encouraged that sort of adoption back in the 2010s? I think it began organically and then they started to encourage the adoption. So doing things like um, interesting partnerships and collaborations with like-minded brands like uh, Santa Cruz Skateboards or developing their own Project Paps Music Festival, like really paying attention to the culture of the audience and creating experiences and engagements for them that not only could make their budget extend further, but also allow people to use PBR as part of their own cultural currency and the way they connect to their own values and share in the experiences that that they care about. And that was sort of original for the time. But the problem is, you know, fast forward from say 2010 to the early 2020s, 
the rest of the industry and probably all industries have caught up to that idea of, you know, marketing to the culture of their audience. And so when we inherited the assignment, PBR was sort of back in this position where they had lost relevance with younger drinkers today. The audience that adopted them 10 years ago was now aging out of the bar scene. You know, you have your elder millennials who now have kids and mortgages and they're not drinking beer as much as they used to. And they hadn't really figured out how to stay relevant to the interests and the passions of the up and coming drinkers of the day. And so that was the situation that we were in. Is that, Rob, is is that is that the result of the feeling that brands have that they can't overmanage their brand identity when they have organically grown share as a sort of a subculture brand? In other words, the worst thing you can do for a subculture brand is to market it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the great thing about PBR and kind of what makes it really unique is that it is cool, right? And it is, and it is something that is a badge of... Um, counterculture and being radically yourself but a brand can't say that about themselves right and i think that's where most brands uh find themselves uh speaking hollow or not being authentic to their their communities but if you take a look at the heritage of pbr's kind of um counterculture establishment uh Back in the 60s and 70s, there were these moments when PBR what became like a center point of pop culture and became a flashpoint um, for different TV shows and films. I'm thinking Easy Rider. There's a really famous scene in Blue Blue Velvet um, where there's some expletives thrown around about how it shouldn't be Heineken; it should be Blue Ribbon and perhaps Blue Ribbon and because they were kind of the the PBR uh, brand was taken and badged by kind of these cultural icons uh, and these these art and film and, and television shows. All we had to do really was continue living the truth of who we are authentically versus trying to double down and you know uh, and 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 try to try to self badge as authentic in situations where you are in charge of a brand that's sort of got sort of maybe cult status is too strong a term, maybe not. How do you, how do you manage that through from decade to decade, from cohort to cohort, from generation to generation without seeming to be changing yourself to fit the, to fit the day? I think what, something we talk about internally is how do we continue to be a magnet brand uh, versus a mirror and just trying to reflect the culture of your audience versus doing and creating experiences worth participating in so that people feel like they are expressing who they are and connecting to audiences that they see themselves as through that experience. Um, So one of the things that we had to deal with with PBR is that it wasn't necessarily a a continuous story that they had continued to evolve over time. There was sort of this this flash in the pan moment in the 2010s. And then over 10 years, they started to kind of lose the narrative of how people were engaging with their brand, while at the same time, their core drinker base started to shrink. And that's not just something that PBR was dealing with. The entire category was essentially dealing with a downward tip in sales. Um, so you're 
you're up against the fact that people are just drinking less than they did and that your core fan base is aging out of more frequent drinking occasions. And you need to continue to find ways to fan the flames, but also potentially introduce or reintroduce yourself to drinkers that haven't really heard of you yet because, you know, in the 2010s, they were, they were still in grade school. Um, but you have an aging fan base that doesn't really engage with you as much. And so something that we had to really consider was how do we find an opportunity to identify a shared mindset that all kinds of drinkers can tap into when it comes to PBR, not just speak to the heart of any one audience. Because when you think about PAPS, you know, our audience range that we were given was anywhere between 25 and 50, which is, you know, entirely different stages of life, um, values, orientation around what's important to them. But there are always red threads that you can find between demographics when you look at psychographics and mindsets. And that's ultimately what helped us unlock the creative strategy and the creative approach for, for past. One of the things that I, that I as, as I hear you explain that, Lauren, uh, I, I'm reminded of an episode that we did for, uh, for Volkswagen. And they have this, what I think is a wonderful platform uh, for the brand. And it, it, and it's it's actually they label it as drivers of change that that VW drivers are drivers of change. They're those people who are dissatisfied with the status quo. And it works because to to Lauren's point about red threads, there's this idea that the the great uh, the great peaks for VW have always been around cultural movements that were sort of expressions of dissatisfaction with what was happening in society. And those are the times when VW seems to perform the best. And um, and when you look back at the work as we did during that episode, we begin to see that this sort of dissatisfaction with the status quo is expressed in uniquely different ways, depending on the decade that you might be talking about. And I'm wondering, is there sort of a core F here for for paps is it sort of a uh is there a sort of a, a platform that you guys work off of you know i i would say that when we started working with pbr specifically they didn't have a strong sense of what their driving brand purpose or platform was um they've been somewhat in um sort of in a cycle of understanding what's happening in culture and then reacting to it with interesting experiences for their core users. I think something that they were aware of is that since the 2010s, that idea of being counterculture and anti-establishment might have swung the pendulum a little too far into being overly exclusive, where, you know, at, at one point we were trying to go against the the norm uh, to differentiate, but then it started to feel like this exclusive, you can't sit with us kind of attitude um, and being overly exclusionary. And they wanted to take a step back and find a way that, you know, without losing any sense of teeth to their brand platform, how can we invite more people to pull up a bar stool? And how can we really focus on celebrating this attitude of no matter who you are or what you're into, PBR celebrates you. And so we had to take that as a beginning point and sort of figure out how do we make some more tension built into that? How do we add more tension into that? And also how do we find um, a platform and develop a platform for them for the first time that not only leans into 
a shared mindset that all kinds of folks can tap into, but also authentically allows them to have a role in the story. You know, we needed to make sure that PBR couldn't just be a stage to tell other people's stories on. Uh, they needed to have a clear role and a clear identity within whatever we created. If the intent was to raise awareness and raise consideration as such a small brand in a massive landscape. So we did a couple different things. You know, Rob and I had worked with them on doing a macro trends report where we dove really deep into all slices of what's trending in culture and how it might apply apply to the beer space to understand what shifts are moving in culture. In, in subcultures or, or in, um, in anti-establishment type cultures or in the, I mean, that culture is such a massive uh, canvas, right? Right. Macro culture at large and how it might apply to the beer space. So something that we did with them was uh, it was kind of an interesting pursuit where they wanted to get smarter on what was trending in culture that would relate to younger drinking age individuals, but also have a natural line into the beer space. Um, and then worked with them to sort of take some high-level thoughts and narrow in on, say, seven to ten trends that felt most applicable. And this is everything from, you know, um, how global flavors are expanding to the idea that younger people care more about badging themselves and their personal brand than um, than anything else, or uh, shifts in how our collective consciousness is orienting around nostalgia or nostalgia because we're seeking comfort in a very chaotic world. And we talked about what felt most relevant to them and why, while also holding up what was unique about their brand. And when we looked at their brand tracker and the the areas where, PB, where people think that PBR sort of outshines the competition, there were three areas where PBR performed really well. This reputation of being a value-oriented brand, of being a classic brand, and of and of evoking nostalgia in people. And then we did a deep dive into understanding what is the culture of younger consumers today? What is that cultural? Even, let me just, let me just say, before you go on, let me start to interrupt you. Um, when you talk about those, those three attributes, value, classic, and nostalgia, is there a, is PBR viewed as nostalgic among, uh, you know, early uh, drinkers in their twenties and their thirties, or is it just, that's more of a, a factor associated with the brand for an older thirties, forties plus drinker. Did it have equity? Uh, did it have nostalgia equity for drinkers that are, you know, in their twenties? As you can imagine, it sort of lessened the younger you go. Yeah. So people who had, you know, true experiences with it, say 20 years ago in, in their sort of heyday of being young and free and running around, those are really personal experiences with, with it, right? But then you get your 30-somethings who do have experience with it. And once you reach your 20s, it might be more like, oh, yeah, you know, I've seen my grandpa drinking that beer. And I remember him drinking it growing up on the back porch. So there's a general familiarity with the brand. Um but that personal sense of nostalgia versus familiarity changes as you skewed younger. Yeah, and I don't, and I, and I don't think that, um, and I don't think because people might be going, "Oh, geez, it's a grandpa's brand." No, I, th right. I think the important, th the important thing is to realize that that is not a negative characteristic to be attributed uh, to be associated with grandpa sitting on the porch. Mm -hmm. That that is a nostalgic value that can be very rooted in authenticity. Our, our personal values, right? It, it's not seen as a necessarily as a negative. Right. You know, I think what we were dealing with was somewhat of a clean slate with younger consumers. We did some focus groups with them as well and asked about, you know, perceptions of PBR. And there was just this, this identity of like, it, 
it represents Americana to me for some reason. And Ooh, I can't yeah, quite yeah. why, or, you know, I, I've definitely seen it at the bars or if I, you know, if I'm in college, I've seen a keg of PBR at the party. Um, but I don't know much about it. Like I don't have much of a personal connection to it. I have a general familiarity with it. So the feel good, you know, warm fuzzies that people might have, you know, started to skew older, but younger people is like, yeah, I, I know it. And I generally feel good about it, but I don't have much of an opinion on it. What we found was that the relationship with PBR was way more functional the younger you got and way more emotional the older you got. And it's interesting because that emotionality um, of PBR was way more specific for Gen X and boomers and more of a um, kind of like shared cultural somewhere in the clouds, ethereal um, memory driver for the younger generations. The 800-pound gorilla in the room uh, is craft beer. And how how more difficult did craft beers make it uh, for you guys to be able to frame a strategy, Rob? Was, is, that, is that still a major factor in terms of a competitor that you've got to navigate around in this, in this idea of subculture, subcultures of beer? Craft beer in and of itself is booming wildly across the country, and it continues to. The amount of uh, oversaturation in the market, like total volume of options have increased so dramatically that um, in a way, like that, that is definitely, we don't know where that's going other than it's unsustainable how fast that space is growing. Um, and it's, and it's kind of a blessing and a curse in some ways because uh, it's a blessing in the sense that like we are clearly differentiating ourselves from other craft beers in the sense that we aren't pretentious about it. We are very drinkable. We are very approachable. I, I suppose you don't have to have a manual to drink Pabst beer, but when you're in craft beer, you almost feel like you need to learn the lexicon. There's a whole language and a set of of um, behaviors and attitudes and symbols and everything else associated with craft. And, and is and I love that you pointed out the fact that you guys are unpretentious. You don't want to, you don't embrace the potential sort of pretentiousness and artisan sort of um, uh, characteristics of sort of hipster culture. And as a beer that is looks to bring people together to enjoy experiences and enjoy each other's company and kind of live the most fun life, um, sometimes the conversation about how nutty or buttery a wine is or how exactly. chocolatey or coffee-ish a beer is gets in the way of just having a good time. Yeah, it's a social pressure. Right. Right. I think from a competitive position like the craft beer piece and that exploding was was one element of a much harder puzzle to put together where we were kind of up against two things you're dealing with uh, an ever increasing amount of new products hitting the shelf not just within the beer aisle but within ways to get a buzz in general so whether it's craft beer or sub-premium lager, which is more in our space, you're seeing a lot more beers at aisle, but you're also seeing different kinds of alcohols and spirits hit the shelf that we're starting to compete in that space of a very drinkable, casual beverage like, like PBR. You're seeing a revolution in cannabis products, and that's a different way to get a buzz. You're seeing uh, an explosion of... Um, 
the the hard seltzers in the world, which is very much that same sort of occasion, usage occasion that people are reaching for when they think of a light beer. The other thing that we were up against is that, especially with younger drinkers, those millennials and kind of up and coming Gen Zers, we're at a time in culture where it's it's never been so cool to not drink. So people and um, people are drinking less than they did in the past. There's this movement towards sober curiosity and moderation, which is good in a lot of ways, but obviously it's stealing stealing occasions and frequency to to drink and purchase beer. You look at Gen Zers and they're drinking 20% less per capita than their millennial counterparts did at their same age. So when you look now at um at your how you sort of think about your target but i'm just curious are they are they different than the way that the brand used to be perceived or are the way that it was thought about when it was sort of a cult classic maybe not in the in the easy rider time um, right. where it was more anti-establishment but it maybe in the in the in the aughts was it was it sort of the same idea that that people wanted something different i i think there's some direct evidence in this. Uh, we have a, a practice we use called social data intelligence that takes kind of big semantic data around conversations about a brand or a category. And uh, we're able to kind of slice and dice it to like zoom out on the internet and see how kind of behavior shift, uh, perceptions on brand shift over time. And one of the thing that, things that was very clear to us between 2015 and 2022 or so is that the evolution of audience taste that we're uh, engaging or discussing PBR uh, went distinctly from something that you would think more of like a frat culture or a bro culture, more archetypal to kind of frat living um, to more of a creative class, to more intentionality, to more thinking about inclusivity and being tested out. And as we kind of made that shift from fraternal communication style to something that was mischievous and didn't lose its teeth, um, but was more focused on the creative, that was more focused on kind of generative uh, uh, and intentionality of language, uh, we found that our audience started growing and our audience started engaging more. And I don't get the sense then, Lauren, from the campaign that this this isn't about, you know, here's here's some guy in his DIY shop and he's crafting no. uh, you know, he's crafting a, a whistle out of a single piece of wood. It's not that. It's it's about an attitude more than um, what you're actually doing. I agree. When we say maker mentality, it's less about, you know, craft and artisan. And it's more about nowadays, especially in youth culture, everybody sees themselves as creative and having something to add to the larger narrative. Um, So, you know, everybody thinks they can be a TikTok influencer. Everybody has a microphone and a platform on which to share their stories and their their form of self-expression. And I think that's important because it's less about putting something like art and craft on a pedestal. And it's more about recognizing that we're speaking to younger generations who at the same time, they also value things like tradition and connection to family. Um, And we see them sort of revisiting what was old and making it new again in their own, in their own vision, whether it's um, hearkening back to fashion or music or hobbies or trends, there's sort of this resurgence um, that's happening as younger creators start to 
reframe the perspective um, through cultures. And we have a brand that over indexes for things like nostalgia and being seen as a classic. And at large, we have culture dealing with this, this sense that the world is a scary place. I need to seek out comfortable, familiar experiences in order to feel a sense of connection and groundedness. And all of these ingredients kind of mixed together felt like we had an interesting springboard from a creative perspective. And that's where we started to explore this vein of nostalgia and how how can we use this campaign to transport people to that nostalgic PBR state of mind so that no matter who you are, where you are, you can tap into that and sort of experience it through your own perspective um, and, and imbue it with the own your own meaning that you want to give it um so in looking sort of through the archives of pbr's history how they had marketed or or communicated with themselves with their audiences in the past we found this vintage campaign slogan called pabst is the place and we really loved the idea of borrowing from the heritage of the brand but taking that and reinventing it through this modern lens like we talked about so that's where the campaign idea was kind of born from it's pabst this is the place and it's about transporting beer drinkers back to these timeless places um, and gatherings that we all kind of pine for whether it's like the dive bar that seems to never never change or the bowling alleys that never change or the americana that we all kind of have this shared experience with because they seem like time capsule experiences, there's something there um, for all of us to sort of tap into. Where can you go where the beer is cold? Friendship is forever. Past is the place that's in our hearts where we can be together. Paps Blue Ribbon, this is the place. Pabst is the place where things are exactly as you remember them, right down to the flicker of an old neon sign. Why is it flickering? I don't know. I'm a voice, not a neon mechanic. The way the campaign culminated was in a takeover of a, of a real-life Midwest hotel where we could create an immersive PBR experience that invited people to engage with the brand themselves. So obviously that's nobody's going to nobody's going to want us to skip past that. What what exactly did you guys do with a with a motel? What we did was we took these uh we we found a tourist destination right in the middle of Michigan, uh, Traverse City, and we took a motel, the Grand Traverse Motel, and we went in with a production crew and completely ground up created um as authentically and as filled with easter eggs and as kind of ubiquitously as possible grandma's rec room a dive bar and an arcade and that was the that was the way to kind of get people into uh, a mindset using kind of like these physical triggers and these physical easter eggs that would uh that would get people interested why create that in Traverse City, which is right at the tip of Michigan? Um, and are you expecting people to go there like it's uh, like it's Woodstock, or are you? Or did you just find a place that just did? You didn't need to recreate it on a stage; it was already there. So you decided just to use it as a place, not where people would go, but where it could become a stage for things to happen that you could then push out through social. So the strategy there was that, you know, our budget allowed us to essentially do a three-month summer campaign across 16 key 
cities in the U.S. that were indicated as important sales centers for for PBR. And Traverse City was a great location because it was in the dead center, basically, of all of those cities across the map that were considered key key DMAs for us. Um, But it's also somewhat of a Midwest tourist destination that a lot of people have experiences of, say, like packing up the car and going with their parents over the summer for a week at the lake kind of thing. So it it fits sort of the vibe that we were going for. But strategically, we also knew that we would have the most opportunities for people across those key cities to travel within, say, three hours to get to Traverse City if we invite people to be a part of the experience. And and to just add on to that, like we had three hotel rooms uh, for two months or so. Um, So there was a limited amount of occupancy that would be allowed. And we know that our super fans were going to go and use the use the excuse of visiting our hotel as a destination to have the kind of PBR experience which they did because the entire um, hotel experience sold out every single night and more than uh, more than we expected were traveling from out of town to actually go and you know live immersively in the PBR mindset so was it your expectation that the way that that would travel through social would be far more effective in terms of reach than having a, let's say, a typical type advertising campaign um, uh, would deliver? That is precisely right. We 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 engineered every single element of the rooms to be as Instagrammable and kind of TikTokable as possible, filled with little Easter eggs. If you um, in the dive bar, there was a, a jukebox, and if you pressed P, B, and R buttons at the same time, it would play our jingle, and uh, and uh, a PBR would come out the side of it. Um, the the rec room was filled with secret uh, refrigerators filled with PBR. Um, the arcade had a claw machine with PBR. Everything that we we put in there, we were putting with the mindset of engineering for um, sharing, engineering for uh, asking people to uh, you know play along, ask questions at home. And so we also uh, we also grabbed many influencers to go to the hotel and kind of show their experience. So Lauren, I I got the impression uh, in doing some sort of research before we started that. That uh, if I'm if I'm interpreting if I'm interpreting this right, that this initiative was sort of um, thought of as the beginning of what would become a larger brand initiative. Am I am I misinterpreting that, or or you know what I mean? Was this a test to, to sort of test the waters? You know, it was one of those things where the the assignment was for a three month campaign, and when we landed on Pabst as the place, the client got so excited because they saw the potential in in such a long runway with this campaign, where it evolved from, you know, help us get attention during the busiest sales season of the year to we really think this could be the bones for long term brand building and helping us essentially establish for the first time in a long time a brand platform that we can utilize across all of our marketing efforts. It was balanced with a paid media um, spend around digital video and social out of home um, and influencers that Rob mentioned. So there was dimension to bringing the message to these key cities and creating interesting video content, you know, complete with like a, a 
retro sounding jingle where we kind of transport dull moments into exciting moments with friends. So a lot of legs to take this in different places and build on the idea of, you know, it doesn't always have to be throwback nostalgia. There's room to continue developing what is this past state of mind um, and how can we allow that to evolve and become a bigger part of the brand personality moving forward. You mentioned that this this doesn't have to be about nostalgia. Super interested in hearing a little bit more about that. If um, what are what are what is it about nostalgia that you feel that you might be able to evolve the campaign into? Are there are there certain are there certain um, aspects of of what people either get emotionally from nostalgia that you can maybe leverage? Right. I think there's, you know, is it about transporting people to certain kinds of eras or places or attitudes that we can all tap into? You know, nostalgia is a really interesting one there. Is it more rearview mirror facing or is it about sort of taking some of the best bits of what we've found in the past and reinventing it for the future? So I think there's a lot of opportunity to explore and engage with consumers in different kinds of ways learn more about how they reinvent and create as a, as a forward facing sort of initiative. Um, and that's something that, you know, is, is in the works now, different ways to sort of hold on to that identity piece that we're creating, but uh, create more opportunity for innovation or, or understanding what's happening in culture and how we can lead those kinds of conversations. It's Lauren Sudi, Director of Brand Strategy at DNA uh, in Seattle, and Rob Scherzer, he's Director of Innovation and Digital Experiences at the agency DNA. Uh, thank you both. Really great stuff. We'll have uh, we're, we're going to drop we'll have dropped the spots into the into the audio track here, and also people can go to our website on strategyshowcase.com and they can see all of the creative work and some images uh, from that uh, motel experience up in. Northern Michigan. Thank or not Northern Michigan, but the tip of Southern Michigan. Uh, thank you both. And uh, we appreciate having you here. Fergus, this was great. Thank you so much. Here, This is, I love the way that you kind of, uh, you dig into the, the many parts of the strategy. It's really great. Thank you, man. And we'll see everybody on the next episode. <laughs>